0: Hi, my name's Sebastian King. I'm a paediatric surgeon at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne and today I have the great pleasure of talking with Professor John Hudson. John has been the professor of paediatric surgery at the Children's in Melbourne for the last 20 years and brings an enormous wealth of experience and wisdom to many clinical scenarios. Today, John and I are gonna be talking about Hirschsprung's disease and discussing the assessment, the management and some of the controversies of this difficult condition. The newborn baby with presumed, uh, well, the distal bowel obstruction, presumed Hirschsprung's disease, what are the the keys that you look for on clinical examination? Okay,
1: so the first thing is that we've got the history right. They weren't distended at birth um, um, because there's no um, distension of the colon when there's only got amniotic fluid in it but the moment they swallow air then the colon becomes distended so it classically becomes distended the second third or fourth day of life um, uh, uh, because the colon's in, is not emptying the air very efficiently and then we need to look at the anus and and make sure have we got an anorectal malformation have we got an you know a, a stenotic anus in the or a normal anus in the right place and this is the, to me, it's one of the times where you really need a rectal examination with your f- little finger to find out, does it feel normal? Have we got, can we go through the anal canal, which is roughly the diameter of your little finger, um, and find the tip of our little finger in a dilated rectum, which it should be. In a normal uh, um, rectal examination in a baby, you can put your finger in the canal and then you can feel the rectum means hmm. just above that but in in Hirschsprung disease it doesn't feel like that it feels like the anal canal's too long hmm. it's you can't get Continuing. you can't get it top above if you're not effectively above the pelvic floor because you can't see where you can't feel where the pelvic floor um, uh, is because the spasm in the in the aganglionic um, anal canal and rectum makes it hard to feel what's happening outside so it feels in like an elongated anal canal yeah. and then of course when you take your finger out, um, if I'm doing it right I'll have the medical student positioned so that they'll get the meconium <laughs> on them because it often has a, have a, goes a splat yeah. you know with a sudden decompression which we think is triggered by the passive stretching for some reason releases the spasm that the child's got because. Yeah. When the, when the enteric nerves are missing, the smooth muscle of the colon's in spasm, um, um, which otherwise seems a bit counterintuitive. Um, but so when you stretch it with a rectal exam, that temporarily uh, fixes the spasm and then it'll often decompress suddenly with a big gush. Mm. And often that's enough to fix it. So you don't need to do a proper washout because you've already done that.
0: And you, you've been a advocate for the role of contrast enemas in Hirschsprung's disease. Yeah, right.
1: So why, why wouldn't you do it? Ah. So my personal view is that oh yeah, it adds a little bit, and like everything, it's not black and white. Even though an x-ray is black and white, the interpretation is not black and white. It's always a shade of grey because it's easy to... Because it depends on what's happened before you do the... To the, the, the contrast enema because um, if we've had a washout before, then the so-called transition zone is less obvious. Okay? So if we're doing a delayed um, uh, uh, Hirschsprung patient where the, where the presentation was delayed, contrast enema is much more likely to tell you where the transition zone is because the bowels stretched up above the aganglionic bit and the bit in the, that's got aganglionosis this got in spasm so you can see the difference between the narrow bit and the wide bit Mm. but in a baby because the bowels not working very hard before it's born we only think it might pass meconium a few times maybe we're not sure does this happen in every baby they ever pass meconium? we know it happens quite commonly in gastroschisis Mm. um, hence the peel Um, but we're not sure whether it happens how, or if it how how quickly or how commonly it uh, occurs in a normal baby, but f- for practical purposes they don't pass many, if any, uh, stools until they're born. So the transition zone at birth is actually not very obvious because the bowel hasn't to work, had to work very know, hard. No. But but it's still useful, I reckon, because it gives you a bit of an idea. Um, but also particularly my personal view is that the thing that it's most useful for is not just telling you the level in the colon because you can tell by doing laparoscopic biopsies which is might be otherwise pretty standard now um, but it tells you whether we've got a really long segment um, a Hirschsprung disease which otherwise you can miss pretty easily
0: and what are the signs that you look for on the contrast enema to suggest long segment disease
1: well, in the in the enema with Hirschsprung disease, normally you lose the dilated rectum relative to the sigmoid, because in the normal in the normal bowel, the sigmoid, the proximal sigmoid, is narrower than the distal sigmoid or the or the rectum. Okay, so so there's a natural um, uh, sort of dilatation of the of the rectum, but in Hirschsprung disease, that's missing. Um, um, so you need that's one of the things and. There might be an obvious transition zone or what appears to be an obvious transition zone, but we need to re- re- recognise that the transition zone can be two to five to ten centimetres, but occasionally can be half the colon, hmm. which when it's half the colon, it's not easy to, ob- not, hmm. not obvious at all. And then the other thing, but might be obvious if we've got a real long segment Hirschsprung disease or a very strange transition zone, the haustra will be a bit abnormal. There'll be no haustral pattern. So the bowel might not look contracted like a micro colon in Meconium hmm. miles but it might not have normal haustra. It'll just sort of look sort of, you know, narrow but not hmm. micro, but not with normal no, haustral pattern. More like a question mark
0: as opposed no. to a, a, a yeah, right. typical so, haustral. So if
1: I haven't got a normal um, If I haven't got a normal haustral pattern, then I might be I'm immediately suspicious that I might have a really long segment or even a colonic um, total colonic Hirschsprung Mm -hmm. disease that might look from the outside just the same as a you know distal sigmoid one because when you do the washouts stuff comes out. Because when you've got total colonic Hirschsprung disease, remember the ileal fluid is so loose That'll come right down a narrow channel, like a spasm colon, often often better than a distal Hirschsprung disease mm-hmm. will. Because distal Hirschsprung disease, the proximal colon is, you know, absorbing the water, so the stool's more solid, so it's hard to go through the spasm. Mm-hmm. But total colonic Hirschsprung disease, where it's ileal, it's liquid, so that comes out easier. So mm-hmm. you can have liquid stool in a total colonic Hirschsprung disease um, and can go on for months and months before you realise yeah,
0: before it's diagnosed
1: you're right. uh, because it's just so liquid there's no absorption of the water mm.
0: and so the role of the rectal biopsy um, obviously the uh, initial um, suction biopsy gun uh, devi- devised it was by... de- devised here
1: by mm. Helen Noblet when I was a resident so and still amazingly effective and basically it's the standard um, you know uh, way to make the diagnosis the definitive diagnosis of Hirschsprung disease are the ganglion cells missing in the distal rectum and that's the question we're asking mm. and, and rectal biopsy solves that very very quickly a very simple way um, and that's totally changed but then what's happened since is that we've now added laparoscopic biopsies from the outside, looking at the seromuscular biopsies rather than the uh, mucosal biopsies, um, to work out what's the level. Mm. And of course, the other thing about the laparoscopic biopsy is that when you look in with the telescope, um, if you look in right at the beginning, the first thing you need to do is ask, "Can I see the colon contracting?" Because when you first put in the laparoscope, the air hasn't cooled the bowel. That the, the carbon dioxide that you're putting mm. in is a bit cold, and it and it makes the bowel c- stop contracting. But for the first two or three minutes, it'll still be contracting because the bowel hasn't cooled yet in response to the air that the 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 CO2 that's going in, and it'll still be contracting. So you can often see the ganglionic bit and the a ganglionic bit because the a ganglionic bit's not moving and the ganglionic bit is still contracting. Mm. So you can see that 's normal that 's aganglionic, hmm. um, and then five minutes later both moving, they both stop moving stop, but at the beginning it 's quite useful to recognize you can identify the transition zone without the biopsies often, so you know where to do the biopsy
0: and do you put um, credence into the arachnoid vessels on the bowel as a way of being able to determine where that transitions well if've
1: got if we 've got so this the older the child, the more likely that is to be obvious, because the the, the vessels on the surface of the bowel in the in the ganglionic bed that's working harder than normal, it's effectively becoming hypertrophy. The muscle's undergoing hypertrophy because it's trying to push, push, push through the a ganglionic bed through the spasm. Uh, the vessels dilate. Okay, so you can see more obviously, uh, you know, the vessels are much more prominent in the ganglionic bit, particularly if the diagnosis has been a bit delayed. Mm. So if you're doing a Hirschsprung disease in a six month old, it's really obvious. If we're doing it in the first few days of life, it's not nearly that obvious because the bowel hasn't had to push so hard for long enough. We haven't got any hypertrophy of the muscle. So consequently, the vessels haven't hypertrophied either. Mm. So it's a little bit less obvious, but it gets progressively more obvious the longer you wait before you do the diagnosis.
0: And how did your approach to the operation change over the last twenty, thirty years?
1: Oh well we originally did old fashioned stuff. You had to do, you know, colostomy, you had to make sure you so then there was lots of argument about we're gonna do colostomy in the ileum or the proximal colon, or we're going to do it at the end of the ganglionic bat. Mm-hmm. So we would. So the standard before we had more complicated, or um, more uh, fancy, new techniques would be to do left iliac fossa mini laparotomy and trying to work out where the transition zone is, so you can make the di- make the diagnosis of the junction. Is that the, in the, somewhere, somewhere in the sigmoid, because if that was the case, then you could bring the end of the ganglionic bowel as your stoma. Mm-hmm. And then you would then do the definitive surgery where you would bring the sto, undo the stoma and bring it to the mm-hmm. anus, and then you only have to decide, do you need to put the stoma back as a covering yes or no? Yep. And then there were lots of things that people used to do. One of the things I first got taught fairly early in the piece was to leave it hanging out five or ten centimetres, wait for it to sit there for a while, sort of get effectively get stick Mm. to the inside of the the pelvic floor, um, so that would avoid doing a stoma. Mm. That was one of the things that we did before we had more modern things to do. Um, But then of course, that was quite effective, but it was just ugly. Mm. Parents hated that, that was scary, Mm. having a bowel hanging out. but otherwise it was very effective. It just scared the hell out of them. So parents mostly didn't like that. But even though it was actually quite effective, it's, that's quite a good technique in a third world country where you're trying to avoid doing a stoma. Because mm. then you can cut off the bit that's sticking out the following week and send them home and they might never come back. Yep. Because it might be a three day journey on a camel to come back to the hospital and so if you can fix it all in one go without a stoma it has some advantages. So that's quite still useful in some third world yeah. circumstances. But these days we'll be asking, well, can we make the diagnosis? Can we identify the level, make, do laparoscopic biopsies after we've done the rectal biopsy to confirm, yes, we've got Hirschsprungs or no, we haven't. Once we do know then we might do laparoscopic biopsies. And then the question is, can I do a transanal pull through? Um, And I remember doing the first Transcendental pull through at a meeting in New Delhi, um, must be about 15 years ago, just after Jack Langer first Mm. described it. I heard him talk about this at a meeting, and I was at, and I'd done it several, and then I went to a meeting in in New Delhi, must be 15 years or so.
0: yeah, Jack and described about, it in '99.
1: So, okay, yeah, yeah it Was it must have been the early 2000s? Yeah. Okay, so there were 400 pediatric surgeons in the, at the meeting, watching it live on television. Mm-hmm. Okay, in in the lecture theatre while I was in the theatre doing the transanal pull through. And and this was an older girl, I think she's about a 10 year old or something like that. Um. And. When I finally finished, because it took quite hard work, but when I finally finished, I got to to the dinner. Of course, they'd already gone to dinner. All the people who were watching in the in the, in the lecture theatre had already gone to dinner. So when I got there, there was hardly any dinner left because they'd already eaten all the dinner. So hardly had anything to eat because I was the last p- person to get to dinner. But then they all mobbed me and said, "Oh, this is just amazing," you know, and. So they wanted to know all about it. And I said, well, just read Jack's mm. original description of it. So it was pretty straightforward. And I thought, this is quite good. And then 10 years later, I go back to India to another meeting. And then people come up to me and said, uh, I've done 100 um, uh, in trans pull-throughs since you showed me how to do this 10 mm. years ago. I <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> are out of control.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Mm. So, so like everything in life, in your teach people who've got the opportunity to learn really, really quickly because they've got millions of patients. Um, that was very effective. So yeah. transanal pull-through became the normal in the
0: subcontinent, basically very overnight. Quickly. Yeah, very uh, quickly. Okay. And, and you've always been more of a Swenson versus a Suave approach? Yeah, why? Yeah, because it was easier.
1: Yeah. And, and it's very simple because when I first started doing transanal pull-through, I found finding the plane between the mucosa and the, 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 the muscle hellishly fiddly, hmm. amazingly fiddly. Okay? And then I kept asking myself, well, why, do I just, why don't I just do a, uh, a Swenson rather than sort of upside down Suave from hmm. the bottom up rather than the top down, which is what I'd been taught. Because I actually got taught by Swave in person because he came here when I was a registrar in the 70s. Um, and I remember assisting at the operation when one of the demonstration operations you did to show how you do this so I learnt to do this right at the beginning and
0: was it a lot easier from the top than it was
1: from the bottom yeah it was Mm. yeah it was a lot easier finding starting the getting the plane right was hard enough but it was much much easier than from the bottom the bottom is actually turns out really easy really difficult Mm. the operations easy but finding the right plane so you're doing a suave not a swenson turned Mm. out to be amazingly difficult And I realized, why did we need a a Suave? And the answer is because when you were doing a Suave from the top, you would, remember when we were first doing Suaves, when it first started in the 70s and 80s, the child was six months, might be even one or two, Hmm. okay? So the pelvis was really deep. You couldn't see down behind the bladder at the laparotomy. Hmm. So... You really needed a suave to pre- prevent you from making a whole mess of the autonomic plexus in the pelvis mm. outside the rectum mm. that's what the suave was invented for it was really good for that because after that we didn't have uh, lots and lots of kids with neurogenic bladder like mm. we had before okay but when you did it from below you can see the bowel either we're, we're on this side of the muscle or we're outside but the Autonomic plexus is right mm. out here mm. where you never Last see. Way. So my view, I suddenly realised when I'm doing this that every time I did the so-called suave um, transanal, it ended up being a Swenson anyway. So I thought, why don't I just do a Swenson straight mm. off and stop pretending? And it turned out to be even easier because mm. finding the outside of the rect of the the rectal musculature is actually really easy from below, mm. um, as long as you're not messing with the External sphincter, okay, yeah, so I found that you didn't need a suave because the indication for a suave was to protect the pelvic plexus because you couldn't see it because it was hidden behind the bladder mm. uh, in the deep pelvis, but from below, you can actually see yeah, you see everything you're looking at it, okay well there are those nerves you don't touch them. Mm. you say stay on the outside of the bowel and push all the other things away very, very carefully, and so. I recognise when I started doing transanal, uh, you know, operations I didn't need the Suave, I just needed the Swenson and it turned out to be quicker. Mm. And I reckon it was just as good, probably better, because yeah, you didn't spend another half an hour fiddling about
0: unnecessarily. Going in and out of the plane.
1: Yeah right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but, because the Swenson from below turns out to be perfectly reasonable because we're not worried about the pelvic plexus like we were from above
0: and so for the for the people who don't have your experience, if you're in the setting of uh, laparoscopic um, biopsies, you think that this patient's got short segment disease, yeah, right. and you start biopsying and you've biopsied the distal and then the proximal sigmoid, and you're now working your way up the descending colon, and you' oh, yeah, yeah. you're getting oh, ang- oh yes so where where at what point? Well, where did you next? Where do you place your next biopsies? And when did you uh, make the decision that this patient doesn't have a pull through today? They have a stoma. What was your thinking like getting around that? I
1: get into the descending colon, the the transanal pull through, the highest one I've ever done was at the splenic flexure, mm. but I had to mobilise the splenic flexure from laparoscopically to be able to do that. Yep but but for for practical purposes the moment you get into the descending colon you need to be thinking maybe we need to just make sure because the moment we're in the descending colon transanal through suddenly is a really complicated operation rather than an easy operation Mm. and then I want to biopsy the, the, if not this appendix this this cecum Mm. and ask have I got ganglion cells in the proximal colon or the terminal ileum in case we've got total colonic Hirschsprung disease because mm. um, we need to because it doesn't actually matter too much because if it's in the transverse colon I'm not going to do a transanal pull through today anyway mm. so it's alright. Yep. So my personal view is that you might then, and I've got a few where I found the transition zone in the transverse colon, distal or proximal or in the ascending colon I've got one family where transition zone turned out to be about halfway up the ascending colon mm. okay and we did, we didn't do anything complicated at the beginning but in the end once we knew the level we then brought the ascending colon to the to the anus yep. okay that was a much more complicated operation we had to do the old fashioned you know abdomino perineal operation mm. and then turn it the other way around to make sure we don't twist the the, the, the mesenteric vessels to yeah. this to, the, to effectively to the cecum and tra- ascending colon
0: yep. and and for those um, your approach for long segment disease has still been to do a Swenson or have you done de Hamel in that setting What's been the, your preference? For total colonic Hirschsprung disease I've done de Hamel hmm.
1: that's quite a good operation for that to me that's the best operation for total colonic Hirschsprung disease yes. Because it's for two reasons. Um, You're taking advantage of the fact that even though the colon doesn't have any innovation um, that we're going to use, the rectum, it's still got a little bit of absorptive capacity and takes a bit more of a reservoir uh, space. Uh, um, But the real reason is that it's an easy operation. When otherwise, doing a really complicated operation going right down to the pelvis, through the pelvic floor, because by the time you've disca- d- discovered that it's a long segment, it's often an older child, and doing this surgery when the pelvis has gotten deeper with the age of the mm. child, it's just harder. So just going down to the top of the pelvic floor... a duhamel is Hmm. an easy operation in an older kid so i found that that's a really easy operation not very dangerous relatively simple um, and perfectly effective Hmm. so i haven't thought i needed any alternative i don't need a swenson or a suave variant for for a total colonic offspring i've just so that's the only time i've done a duhamel but I found that very helpful for yeah. that, and it's not a very difficult operation. You don't have to do it every day to know how to do it easily. Yeah. It's very simple, so I found that very easy. When a suave operation is a bit more complicated, because you have to practice finding the plane um, to get to be good at that, so you're not making a hole holding out all the
0: time. Um, uh, but you're reassuring a lot of people because you know you're technically very capable. Well, I don't know, but it's just like everything. So,
1: suave, suave operation was always hard. So, and I learned how to do this, as I said, when I was, mm. a, med- when I was a medical registrar, um, but still difficult because finding the plane, as I said, from the bottom is even harder. From the top's hard enough. Um, it's easy to make a mess of it. But Duhamel is actually a really easy operation mm. by comparison and it saves a lot of trouble um, so you don't have to do difficult dissection section in the pelvic right deep in the pelvis to do it. You just need a space at the back and then... Yeah, it goes. Yeah, it's easy.
0: Yeah. So I think it's just hard to beat, really. Well, thank you again very much for your That's wisdom right. and thoughts today. And we look forward to continuing these sessions with Professor John Hudson.